I'm Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, episode 116. This episode is yet another collaborative deep dive where I have some expert guests join me to go deep on a topic of interest. Now, with this episode, I'm trying a new format for the collaborative deep dive. I'll give you a little background here. I'm a big fan of Bill Simmons's Rewatchables podcast. This is where Simmons and various co-hosts go deep on various films that are imminently rewatchable. Simmons and his co-host are huge pop culture movie buffs, and they really want to show that off as they get into some of the movies that they they really have loved. Well, I realized at some point listening to the rewatchables, I'm really in the nonfiction books. I read them all, especially pragmatic nonfiction. I know many of the authors. I've been writing them professionally since I was 20 years old. My entire life is infused with the art and industry of pragmatic nonfiction. So here was my thought. It might be fun to try doing a rewatchable style format, but aimed at a book instead of a movie. Well, I finally got around to giving that a try. In today's episode, we go deep on the classic book, Matt Crawford's Shop Class as Soulcraft, a book that was influential to me, a book that is cited in both deep work and digital minimalism. To join me in this deconstruction, I had on longtime friend of the show, Brad Stolberg, along with his partner in crime, Steve Magnus. Brad and Steve are the co-authors of Peak Performance and the Passion Paradox. They run the Growth Equation HQ website and the Growth Equation podcast, on which I have been a frequent guest. You should check out both of those. These are two other authors who also really were influenced by Crawford and Shop Class of Soulcraft. So we get into it in this episode. We try to figure out, A, not just what is this book about, why does it resonate, its impact on us, some insider baseball on the book's reception and what came afterwards and whether it'll be a classic or if it was just a one-time thing. We cover a lot of ground here. So if you're a fan of advice or pragmatic or philosophical nonfiction books, if you're interested in the publishing industry, I think you might like this episode. Anyways, there's probably a lot of work to be done to get this format right. I'm not sure if I want to keep doing this or not, but I kind of enjoyed it. Your feedback is welcome at interesting at calnewport.com. I'm interested in your thoughts, but for now, let's get started in my conversation on rereading Shop Class as Soulcraft with Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. All right, we're rolling. I am here with friends of the show, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. We are here to talk about a book that none of us wrote. Um, All right, so the book is Shop Class as Soulcraft. See if I got that right. That's Matt Crawford's book. Uh, I have cited this multiple times in various books I wrote, so it must be influential. Quick backstory on this. Matt wrote a essay for the New Atlantis. New Atlantis is like a, I don't know if it's peer-reviewed, it's sort of a pseudo-academic tech and culture publication. He wrote an essay in 2006 that was called Shop Class as Soulcraft, and it had a more mundane subtitle. It was something like The Case for the Manual Trades. Came out in book form in 2009, where the subtitle became more elevated. It became an inquiry into the value of work. I remember reading this book 
I was in grad school at the time. I was finishing up my dissertation. I brought it with me on a trip to San Francisco, sort of an influential trip for a lot of reasons we can get into. So I, I remember this book coming into my life and uh, it being affecting at the time. Uh, but Brad, what about you? Where was What was your encounter with Mr. Crawford and his shop? Yeah, I also read the book in grad school. So for me, that was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, shortly after the book came out. And I, at the time, was um, probably spending too much energy training for triathlons. And part of what I loved about that, even though I wasn't a great triathlete, was that it was real and there was a clock and it was very objective and measurable. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but um, that that to me is really the core theme of Crawford's book and his work more broadly, which is that um, we tend to glorify knowledge work in very heady pursuits, but there's something very satisfying about real things in the world. And And what about you, Steve? Were you repairing motorcycles at the time? And it just resonated. You're like, yeah, he said what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. So I actually read this a couple of years after it came out. And actually, I think two or three years after grad school. Um, and it was in my transition, I would say, from only reading things that were related to running and coaching, which was my primary job and endeavor at that time and branching out uh, into other areas and picked up shop class at Soulcraft. And it's funny, you know, looking back at my underlines and notes throughout this, throughout the book, there are so many instances where I just underline and then write coaching and then some note in there. So it was very, at this point, I'm tying it all towards running and then coaching runners, uh, which was real to me at that point. Uh, so real is coming up a lot. Uh, I mean, for people who don't know, the book is Matt Crawford's story as a political philosophy PhD from Chicago. And that that is the school to get that PhD, right? So that's like being the math PhD from MIT. Comes to DC, gets a think tank job, basically like a fake think tank. It's one of these make work DC jobs, which is sort of half of all the jobs in in DC. And then just has this crisis at some point and says, I'm going to repair motorcycles and then writes lovingly about the difficulty of dealing with bolts that get rusted shut and the complexity of replacing gaskets. Is this book, was this basically, is this eat, pray, love for the early mid-career sort of white knowledge worker? I mean, is is, is is that the right way to think about this? I don't know. I haven't read Eat, Pray, Love. So um, tell me she, more she, about that She book. gets lost. She gets, okay, so she's, you know, it, 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 she's lost in life and she goes to Italy and, and, you know, has, she enjoys really good food and finds, I guess, some sort of spirituality and then eventually, uh, you know, a, a boyfriend or a husband or something like this. And it was about uh, learning, the escaping the the whatever, the, the boredom and constraint of her life that was sort of falling apart and rediscovering something that was more real and a source of more authentic pleasure. And so it's great. You daydream like, yeah, I could be in Italy looking at the ocean, at the sea, at the Mediterranean, you know, eating this great food or something. And it was a Julia Roberts movie too. So there you go. 
And so he escaped, right? It was like, this job makes no sense. I, I, I don't even know what I do. I write reports. I'm not sure why. It seems to take up a lot of time. And then, you know, he escapes, not the eating Italian food, but the uh, making motorcycles work that didn't work before. It's sort of like a, an escape to the exotic that is somehow more authentic and therefore finds himself. I mean, maybe that's, is that, maybe that's the log line. You know, eat, 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 pray, love for uh, dudes who are tired of writing reports. Uh, you know, I've never uh, never read the book, but I saw the movie once with an ex-girlfriend, so I'm going to dive in here. I think you're spot on. Because to me, this book reads, uh, Crawford's work reads as almost this between time, once you're finished with school and grad school and you have this idealistic vision of what you're trained to do and what you're about to do, and then you get met with these this reality and your expectations and reality don't match up. So you go on this kind of journey towards finding meaning in self, uh, which I think is what Crawford does so uh, brilliantly in it. Right. So the manual trades is like a metaphor here, right? I, I mean, this is the thing that catches me about this. I'm reading the review in the New York Times was a rave. Francis Fukuyama wrote it. And look, I even have it here, but it, he calls it, uh, what does he say here? A beautiful, beautiful little book about human excellence and the way it's undervalued in contemporary America. There is no one who is sort of least connected to the manual trades or, or has less interest than being in the manual trades than, you know, Francis Fukuyama. And I don't know a single person who read this book who are, who came away with the message of like, yeah, I'm going to quit my job, like actually quit their job to, to Ben Conduit as an electrician or this or that. And yet it was incredibly resonant and it had all these raves. So I, how do we understand that, right? I mean, the thing that he's doing, the thing that the whole book is built around, this sort of work with your hands is is incredibly, can be incredibly complicated and fulfilling and we undervalue manual. It's like this, this real big argument. And yet most of the resonance that it had had nothing to do with manual trades. It's not, wasn't convincing people to go in the manual trades. No other people that I know of quit their jobs and went there. None of the reviews are come away with like, yeah, we need like less knowledge workers. So what's, what's going on here? Like, it's like this weird, not a red herring, but is it a metaphor? Is it a stand in? Is it a, a stand in for excellence? To me, it's like the most interesting feature of this book is that it is loved by people and it feels changing to people like us that had no thought coming away of like, yeah, I got to, I got to spend more time with engine gaskets. So I have a, a hypothesis here The to answer your question directly. I do think that the manual trades are just a stand in for doing real work. That isn't bullshit with a result that you can trace back to yourself. And that could be the manual trades, but that could also be gardening, running, weightlifting, sculpting, basically anything but middle corporate America reports that don't really mean much, which is what Crawford was doing. The second interesting thing is that probably my favorite book of all time is that in The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, very similar, right? Robert Persig goes off on this huge motorcycle journey. Some of the best parts of that book are when his motorcycle breaks down and he has to fix it. And that book did not become a cult classic amongst motorcycle riders. It became a cult classic amongst people that were dissatisfied with their knowledge work jobs. Capital Q quality. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, capital Q quality, which Crawford defined as like caring deeply about what is in front of you. 
And I think that's why these books have so much resonance because in order to fix a motorcycle really well, this is a case that both Crawford and Persig make, you have to care and you have to pay really close attention. And I think lots of people in their first, second, third jobs, maybe in that 30 to 50 range that have kind of just climbed the ladder, done what's next, they don't really care about what their job is. They don't, it doesn't demand close attention. They're constantly multitasking. And this book is a reminder that says, hey, if you actually can take something that is at point X, or in the case of a motorcycle that is broken, get it to point Y, or in the case of a motorcycle, fix it using your own skills and capabilities, that is extremely fulfilling. Now contrast that with the job of a management consultant or investment banker, and it is night and day. Yeah, the the only thing I'd add there is that I think that, you know, the manual work in terms of motorcycle maintenance and, and shop class can be replaced by almost anything that is like experiential and has a high degree of absorption. So as as you're reading this, as I was reading this back then and having no clue on anything, you know, motorcycle maintenance related or anything closely related to that, I'm relating all of these experiences to what I know, which is, oh, at that time, like running, which I'm sitting here like, oh, yeah, when I'm absorbed in this activity, it feels the same way. I understand and see this nuance. Oh, yeah, this differential and knowledge that he talks about in terms of learning things versus doing and then learning from that experience. Oh, yeah, that's that same battle I'm going on in, in my own coaching training life where I'm sitting there. Well, I learned this yep. in grad school, but observing these athletes, like that doesn't really apply. And I need to like bank on this experience. So I think, you know, it's pretty simple. And that the, the, even though it's a book about motorcycles, like we all just replace that with whatever we kind of know and experience. And it just kind of hit on this almost universal experience for this time period where uh, we have a lot of people who went from college into these jobs that don't value this time, type of experiential work um, and this type of absorption. And we were seeking the, that, that flow or that absorption elsewhere. Well, so why, so I completely agree with this. And this is the, the alchemy of this book though, that I'm trying to understand is let, like, let's bring in a comparison. Mike Rowe, okay? So, you know, Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs uh, on Discovery Channel, has the Rowe Works Foundation. On paper, Rowe and Crawford are talking about the same thing, which is there is there is a real, like, value and dignity and satisfaction, not to mention re- re- remunerative aspect to the the skilled trades, right? That's, Mike Rowe is all about that as well. And, like, Crawford is is Mike Rowe with a PhD, Right, so it's it's micro, but I have a fancier vocabulary, and I'm going to use words like make my intentions manifest and et cetera, et cetera. But yet, you don't. You, when someone like me encounters micro or someone watches dirty jobs, it's voyeuristic. It's like, oh, this is interesting to see what it's like to work in these jobs or this or that. Has no affect in term, no effect in terms of oh, what's going on with my own life. Crawford's on paper making the exact same point. And yet it's like Steve is talking about, we immediately are substituting. Yeah. Well, obviously the, the motorcycle repair is metaphorical and I'm thinking about the, 
the the devalued nature of my own job and value and all these types. By the way, it sent me down a whole intellectual rabbit hole for years that shows up in all my books. What is it? This is what I'm trying to figure out. I think it's the magic of this book is what was it about the way that he wrote it that it had it have that effect? Because, okay, let's also compare it to Richard Sinnott, the craftsman, which who, who blurbs Matt Crawford. I think Sinnott's a, a Yale guy, an academic, who had a book about craft and the history of craft. And I read it after I read Matt Crawford's book. Um, and so it's very academic. It had no effect, it, no effect on me like that. It, it was like kind of interesting and academic, um, but had no impact. It didn't, didn't make me very reflective about my life or this or that. So, man, what is it? Like it, Crawford got something right, and I don't know exactly what it was that allowed this to transcend. Because we see Mike Rowe talking about this topic without the academic stuff. We see Richard Sinnott talking about this stuff with the pure academic stuff, and none of it, none of it's that affecting. Uh, but then Crawford hit something. And, I think. You know, I think what he hit is the middle of those two things. I think that he is academic enough where you can take the broader, like you can take the narrow concept, excuse me, of motorcycle maintenance and see it more broadly because he's giving you an intellectual toolkit to do that. But he's not so academic that it reads like dense philosophy. I think the only other difference with Mike Rowe in particular is his Mike, I'm unaware, but has Mike Rowe written a book or has it always just been TV? I think he now has a book, but okay. it's recent. Yeah. Because I think a uh, book in particular, and what's so beautiful about a book is a book is, is to me, it's much more of a conversation with a reader than television. Because a book, all you're getting is words and you're actually the one reading them. So they're, the way that they sound and, the, and the, the, the tone and the flow is what you make of it. And whatever imagery comes up is in your own brain. Whereas TV, it's a lot more being kind of forced on you. Both the tone, the... Um, the like the, the words that are stressed, the images. So I think some of it is just book versus television. And what's what's so beautiful yeah. about books is is it's much more of a conversation with the reader. Um, and then maybe he just got lucky. I mean, that I, people don't like to talk of it. This is kind of inside baseball, but in our genre of these kind of um, I, maybe the best thing to call them is highbrow personal growth or highbrow self help books. Luck is a big factor. And sometimes you just hit the right book at the right time and the right handful of people come across it and then it spreads like wildfire. Hmm. Do we call this self-help? Did he do his own thing or is this in the world of stuff we know? I mean, Steve, you read it most recently, so maybe you have the freshest thought. Where do you categorize this? Like, what What are other authors you put on the same team here? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it is it is kind of self-helpy, but it's more of this like combination of philosophy and self-help. Maybe along the la- lines of someone like Elaine de Botton. Um mm-hmm. some, you know, where you're you're there is there is like an under underlying message of, you know, you can do this this and this, but it's not uh, expressively laid out in the way that a self-help kind of book would be in terms of, you know, giving structure or step-by-step. Uh, step. It's more of a guide that nudges you along the way, but doesn't provide all of the answers, but gets you down that path towards hopefully helping yourself in some way. I had a hard time. What's your? I had a, my memory, this was 12 years ago, is that it was denser than I expected it to be. And 
I had a harder time getting through it than I thought, but then it stuck with me really long. I don't know if you had a similar, either of you had a similar experience, but for whatever reason, that's my memory. I was like, oh, this is dense. <laughs> you know, like it, it was, and maybe that's its magic. Maybe that's part of the magic. I'm not sure. Or maybe you guys are just smarter than I was. Um, but it's denser than most. I'm trying to think of an equivalent that has that type of self-help type resonance, but is that actually difficult to read? Yeah. I didn't find, oh, go ahead, Steve. No, go go for it, Brad. I was just going to say, I didn't find it that dense, to be honest. I, I found his next book, The World Beyond Your Head, to be quite dense. But if I think back to that period where I read it, I had probably also read Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, Taleb's Anti-Fragile. Maybe I read Anti-Fragile a little bit later. But I was reading some pretty dense stuff. So my brain was probably just like very primed for the philosophical arguments interspersed with story and more down-to-earth on-the-ground writing. Um, Yeah, I do think that maybe what makes it its own thing is that you you do have to wrestle with the ideas in the book. I think Elaine, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Elaine de Baton, who Steve mentioned, I think is a really good um, analogous thing to compare this to. Yeah, who I always call Alan, which is like the most American mispronunciation of <laughs> it's what all French philosophers imagine uh, Americans think about it. Yeah, Alan de Bottom. Yeah, he had a book about Proust. Um, all right, so yeah, I think I was probably just dumber. <laughs> I don't know. I remember that. I just remember being like, maybe I just had my expectations set differently. Uh, I, maybe I, w- I was expecting something easier. I was up to my ears in like math stuff at that point too. So. Yeah, but I was just going to say, I'm going to growth equation you for a little and like putting like a coaching hat on. I mean, there are like performance in anything is so multifactorial and complex. Like you might've had a flu when you read this book that you didn't remember. You might've been like putting together the world's greatest computer science proof. You might've first had the idea for so good they can't ignore you, blah, blah, blah. So I wouldn't overthink why it was challenging. Um, I was right. I was writing the high school superstar book at the time. I remember I had that manuscript with me in San Francisco. It's like before I had made the the uh, the leap into into more respectable. <laughs> yeah, here I was writing a book about college admissions and 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 reading philosophy. So yeah, may, maybe it was the mismatch. What what about the argument that this has? Um, I'm thinking about this on the fly the manual trade piece is maybe a red herring. Like the piece that resonated was the takedown of knowledge work. That certainly is the piece I drew from a lot in my subsequent books is the incredibly incisive takedown. It, like at this time you, you, you it had a few five years before you had, you know, from the movies you had office space. So you had sort of Mike judges takedown. And then here was sort of a more academic takedown, but the way that he, I, the, the term he used, I always remember is uh, bewildering is how he described sort of the the landscape of a knowledge work manager, like what it is. And then he would cut over and say, compare that to this gasket is stuck. And it's going to take like a lot of skill and care, and then eventually it's unstuck. And and so maybe it's that dichotomy is, is what mattered. Not so much that like I want to do gaskets, but like, man, you're really getting it. You're really cutting to the quick here about why I'm just generally unhappy with quote-unquote work. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to quote Crawford, who talks about, in knowledge work jobs, despite the proliferation of contrived metrics, 
most knowledge economy jobs suffer from a lack of objective standards. The result of this, he writes, is that when you ask a knowledge economy worker, particularly uh, an upper or middle manager, what they do, they have to offer a chattering vindication of their work. Whereas if you ask an electrician if the light works, he simply flips the switch. And to me, like that is, that's the crux of the argument. I don't even think it's necessarily all knowledge work. I mean, what we do is knowledge work. I think it's more the middle layers of bureaucracies where people have soul crushing jobs. I think the book that this sits next to on my bookshelf, I'm, I'm neurotic. So I organize my books by theme is David Graeber's 2019 book, Bullshit Jobs, which to me is like the perfect compliment for this book. And Graeber's really clear. Graeber doesn't say that all knowledge work is bullshit. He just justifies a bullshit job as like a job where the world wouldn't be any different if you didn't do it and where the person doing it kind of knows that it's bullshit. Yeah, which is most of, maybe most of knowledge work. Yeah, and it might be. You know, the most popular story I've ever written for the internet was at Outside Magazine, and it's not my favorite story by any means, but um, I don't write the titles, right? Outside does, but it's called Why Do Rich People Love Endurance Sports? And I built the whole argument off of Crawford's book. I, I quoted Crawford heavily in the piece that basically... Most rich people are in these white collar jobs where there is a fair amount of bullshit and they go over to endurance sports, which is hugely objective. It's like the complete opposite. If you're a consultant at McKinsey, something that I have intimate experience with, whether or not you do a quote unquote good job is based on the mood of the client that day, the mood of the partner on the deal of that day, whatever's happening in the external environment and whether or not the squares on your PowerPoint slide are in alignment. A lot of subjective stuff. You go race a marathon. If you went 305 and your goal is to go 303, well, if you go under 303, you did a good job. If you go over 303, you didn't. And there's something that is very satiating and fulfilling about that. Now, I think rich people also love endurance sports because they have the time to train for them. There's all kinds of cool gadgets. I mean, there's a million other reasons And I do think that a big part of it is uh, endurance sports provide a sense of realness for people that are otherwise kind of in like subjectivity, political, wishy-washy land. That's interesting. Interesting. Concreteness. I mean, that's like what you're talking about, Steve, right? Like your your connection to running, the the tangibility of it. Um, Yeah, that. Okay, so I like that theory. Um, I like that theory, the, 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 the concreteness that we lack. There's the neurological cost. Also, uh, manual trades are one thing at a time. You're doing one thing. You're doing that thing. Uh, you're not having to, th- there's this like, weird exhaustion. So, so, so inhuman, the switching back and forth between 19 different open things, each of which you have to touch on with an email that you rushed and it's ambiguous and it's probably not what you need to send that it's just kind of made things more complex. And that's all there, there, there is something maybe more human where it's like, yeah, I'm doing this. I'm trying to make this thing, trying to make this thing work. There's an inhumanity in the multitasking, multi concurrent stream nature of knowledge work that 
you don't really realize how you butt it up against uh, trying to make the lights turn on or something like that. Yeah, when I, you know, along those lines, you, I remember when reading this book the first time, like underlying it, I just kept referring and thinking to self determination theory. Sure. And, and how, like, oh, what Crawford is essentially saying is like, you know, these jobs, this knowledge worker economy, it doesn't fulfill these things, right? This objective that allows us to see that we are getting better in competence. And if we don't have those in that thing, in that area, then of course we're going to do what Brad just mentioned in that article, like venture out and try and find and fill that space elsewhere. And, you know, I, I think, you know, whether it's competency, autonomy or relatedness, I think that underlies like almost the entire premise that, that Crawford is trying to get at. Yeah, I was going to say for those that um, for those that may be unaware, self determination theory, uh, four decades of research, all boils down to three qualities that lead to well being, fulfillment, and those qualities are autonomy or some control over how you spend your time and energy, mastery or a sense of tangible progress that can be traced back to yourself, and then relatedness or belonging, which is a sense of connection to other people, a craft, a lineage. And you think about a motorcycle mechanic, they've got all those things. Autonomy, like the bikes come in the shop, they're on the rack, they're broken. You're there for however long you need to be there. You figure out how to use your time. Mastery, the carburetor engine's broken. I couldn't fix it a year ago. Now I can fix it. In belonging, there's like this huge subculture. I think there's a whole chapter in gearheads of people who are in this small community. So you have those elements that are so firmly in place, whereas you look at the, like the worst of the worst soul-crushing corporate job, you have no autonomy because your calendar is filled with meetings that you don't schedule. You have no mastery because you're writing reports about things that may or may not be necessary, and the judgment of those reports is based on all those subjective factors I just earlier mentioned. And if your belonging is happy hour where you have to go get drunk to tolerate the people that you're with and the discussion that you're having about your work, that's a pretty low score on self-determination theory. Now, I'm being a little hyperbolic. I've gone to happy hours that I've really enjoyed. I've written reports that were meaningful. And I've also been in the opposite situation where I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing in this bureaucracy? You don't drink before these these podcasts like I do. Am I am not the only one? That's how. That's how so I. So here's I, the bombshell. If Cal, you know, Cal's starting to poke fun. This is a, a brief interlude. Mm. Listeners of the Deep Questions podcast, readers of Cal Newport's phenomenal books, Time Block Journal aficionados, Cal Newport was 15 minutes late for this podcast today. And I was lost. I was lost in a deep pursuit. Even better, he interrupted that deep pursuit to text message us. He took out his phone and texted in the middle of a deep pursuit and was late. So it just goes to show that everyone is a human. I was uh, I was in a a deep interview uh, that was running long, and yes, I so and I, I as as Brad pointed out, I cannot get through. I can't get through these conversations if I'm not drunk. So I had to get to the bar card and you know how that goes. I had to, had to set up my drinks. Um, 
what does this mean? I don't know what it means, by the way, that I, I read this book in 2009-2010, almost immediately start writing so good they can't ignore you. A lot of self-determination theory in that book, but don't mention Crawford. It's not till uh, Deep Work, which comes out in 2016. Now, suddenly, I'm quoting Crawford all the time. Maybe this was something that had to marinate. Like, it was influencing me right away, but I didn't realize how it was influencing me uh, until I until I had let it marinate. But it, So is there a solution? In other words, can work that is primarily knowledge, right? So it's, there, there is no physical thing involved. But can it be Crawfordatized? Uh, what would that look like? Yeah, I'll take a quick stab. So the, the first thing I'd say is that um, you can get closer to Crawfordatizing it. And I think that the way that you do it is, A, you make sure that it matters, so if someone's bike is broken or someone's toilet's not flushing, well, that's a problem and you're there to fix that problem. So if you're doing work that inherently you don't find meaningful or you don't think anyone's going to find meaningful and it doesn't matter, good luck. Like you, you, It's a non-starter. The second thing that I would say is pay close attention and care deeply about it. So even if you can more easily coast through writing a report, you shouldn't. You should treat that report as if it's a broken bike and you're trying to figure it out. And then this is the hardest part in knowledge work, which is the concreteness or the objectivity of the result. Here, I would say, if you can have a brain trust or a group of a few people whose opinions you really respect, that you know will be reliable and give you good, honest approval or disapproval of your work, and then you have the guts to only judge yourself based on what those people say, then yes, I think you get closer. And what I just described is how I approach writing. So I think that writing sits somewhere in between manual trade, Crawford-esque, being a sculptor, electrician, whatever, and more traditional white-collar office work. Um, I think that you have a blank page and you fill it, so there's something like really concrete about that. But the subjectivity of results of is it good or not is arguably open to significantly more wishy-washiness than knowledge work because you can't control what readers think or what reviewers think or when the book comes out or any of that stuff. So for me, it's really important that, hey, if you two read my book and like it, and if Kelly McGonigal and blah, 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 writers I respect like my book, then I can rest pretty well and be like, you know, if this book sells or not, like it's a good book. Now, I'll say that it still doesn't get all the way there, which is why I find it so important to personally have a practice that is super concrete. So the reason that I lift weights is not for my physical health. It's not to look a certain way. It's not because I'm competitive. It's because it provides me that really concrete sense of mastery that I don't get from running. Excuse me, from running. I didn't get mastery from running because I never got better at running, but I don't get from writing. Well, an an excuse also to send us videos of you weightlifting. Let's be honest. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I, I receive way too many uh, videos. So I'm a little concerned that you're looking for uh, external validation there from us, uh, Brad. <laughs> Just for my respected peers, man, there is no Brad Stahlberg on Instagram. I read Digital Minimalism. Steve was trying to convince me to have an Instagram account. This is all true, Cal. He's like, it would be good for marketing. It would be good for the growth equation. And then I just sent him your book and said, no Instagram account. And since then, I've been sending all my videos to Steve, looking just dying for some approval from Steve of my deadlift, and he ignores them all. So I, I, I don't think yeah. 
I don't think you solved the problem. You just made me your Instagram, which is, you know, um, going against things. But in all seriousness, kind of piggybacking on what you said there, Brad, I think it's important to understand that, like, well, certain kinds of knowledge work can't get to maybe this idealized version that, um, you know, Crawford kind of outlines in his manual work. But we can shift where we are to a degree. And here, I think it's important to recognize the uh, value of the narrative or story we tell ourselves, because we are in charge or in control to a higher degree than I think we are. We think we are in terms of things like competency, meaning how are you judging whether you're getting better? Because so much of life, as this is an objective, is pretty ill-defined. You know, you mentioned writing like whether we're successful or not can be defined by a number of different things a lot of them kind of mushy and squishy that aren't objective same thing goes in with uh coaching right you can you know we'll step out of objective sports and just say a coaching that you know you or i do with executives or entrepreneurs like are they getting better well they can tell us they're getting better but you know there's no real objective uh objectivity behind it so we get to you know in a sense define where those lines are a little bit and i think too often is we're not intentional and deliberate on where we define that competency and what we value and uh you know all of those different things and instead those almost get placed upon those so they become this like wishy-washy so we can never fulfill them anyways because they don't you know we haven't defined them I want to take a moment to talk about one of the sponsors that's making this week's episode possible, and that is Monk Pack, M-U-N-K. Now, here's the thing. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, right? Often they don't taste very good or they don't fill you up or they're not satisfying your cravings, and this drives you back to the junk that does its own damage. Enter the scene Monk Pack which makes snacks that taste like those sugary snacks you really want, but they do so with one gram of sugar or less, only two to three grams of net carbs, and just 150 calories. In particular, I'm talking about the Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars. That's what I have been trying. They have served me well. As my wife will tell you, sometimes if it's a work day and I get the coffee going, I forget to eat. And then when I forget to eat, I get cranky and I get fatigued and it's kind of a problem. I don't time block lunch into my time block planner. Everything's starting to go off the rails. I need food fast. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars fills that void gets me to that next meal because they have the stuff you need for the energy without the stuff that's going to bring you down, bring down your energy or make you unhealthy. So I'm a big fan of Monk Pack and in particular these nut and seed bars. They taste great. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And we have a special deal just for our listeners. You can get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code DEEP at checkout. Monk Pack is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange that product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. So to get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M U. N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product and enter that code DEEP at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. I also want to talk about our good friends over at Optimize. 
as listeners of this show know, the internet can often get in the way of your efforts to live a deep life. But there are three instances in which the internet can actually help you live a deeper life. Listening to this podcast, using it to buy my books, and third, subscribing to Optimize. Optimize is a subscription network created by my longtime friend, Brian Johnson, that is aimed to help you live deeper. When you sign up for Optimize, you get access to a library of over 600 philosophers' notes. These are expert summaries written by Brian himself of some of the most important nonfiction books of all time, nonfiction books with wisdom on how to live deeper. You also get a daily plus one video right in your inbox or delivered through their app, or you get a bit of wisdom taken from one of these books delivered to you by Brian and access to their 101 master classes, including one I taught on digital minimalism 101. So if you want to find out more, go to optimize.me where you can do a two-week free trial to see if you like it. If you use the coupon code DEEP when you sign up, you will also get 10% off. Optimize.me with that promo code DEEP. Let the internet help you live deeper. And now I'm back to my conversation with Brad and Steve. Yeah, I like that. It's so much work now, it's very unclear what competent means. And it's, one of, it's interesting. Like, can, can we change that? Is it just some jobs that have it? Probably we can change it. Um, but also, okay, let me throw out another theory, passion. So one of the other things that unifies the three of us is we've all three written books about passion. This is something else that maybe helps explain some resonance here is in knowledge work, we have this theory we tell young people like, well, forget if it's your passion, you will like it. This is what matters is matching the content of the work uh, to this pre-existing passion. That goes out the window, like in the discussion of manual trades. I mean, I mean, like Mike Rowe is known for this TEDx talk he gave where he was like, it was his whole thing. No one has a passion to be a septic tank cleaner but people have built great lives out of doing that. And you get this in Crawford too. Nothing about his value structure is about, you know, if you're meant to be an electrician and you finally become an electrician, then you find your value. It's, 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 it's a meaning system that's built out of qualities of the work. Uh, uh, dealing with complex problems and solving them, doing things at a high level. He has a whole section there about looking at the bent conduit of a master commercial electrician and, and just the, the sense of, uh, it said something like makes a grown man easy or something to see the, just the, what a beautiful thing I've done. So he's given a value structure for work uh, that has nothing to do with this, this weird wishy-washy world of, of that we grew up with, which is like, no, the work value comes from the job is your passion. And he's talking about a world. So that maybe is satisfying, especially in 2009. You know, I don't know. Maybe that is, uh, is there a passion play here for, for understanding part of the resonance? Or am I just trying to connect everything back to passion? No, I, I, I think you're, you're kind of on to something to a degree. Uh, because, you know, he doesn't mention passion at all or this, you know, motivation driven by passion at all. Um which I think is something that, again, is something that you picked up on. It's something that Brad and I's work picked up on, on this like running counter to something that I think all of us were either kind of trained or, or told in the 90s through 2000s that connect this passion to your job and your work. 
And I think what Crawford gets on or gets at really interestingly is he almost in certain sections comes away with, hey, anything is interesting if you pay attention to it, like see the nuance and get absorbed in it. Even these like things that are, you know, anyone else would see as frustrating or miserable can be interesting and valuable. And I think that gets at or, or runs counter to this idea that we were sold for so many years of like, find the interest first. And then, you know, that passion will drive you. I think this is like a millennial. I think this is the crux of the issue around millennials, which I am of that generation. So I think that there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a meaningful life and wanting meaningful work. Anyone that says that something's wrong with that, well, that's on you and your generation because what's the point of being here if we can't create or derive some meaning out of it? I think the blind spot for millennials is too often this generation assumes that something will be meaningful right away or something has inherent meaning versus it's actually by doing the thing that it becomes meaningful to you. Um, and that gets back to mastery and what Crawford is writing about. So it is this, this total flipping of the paradigm that says, oh, hey, I'm going to do something because it's meaningful to I'm going to do something and get better at it and stick with it and forge community around it and struggle with it. And then it will be meaningful. And, um, I think that that is another undercurrent through his, his book because on its face, right? Like fixing motorcycles doesn't pass the millennial sniff test for meaning. It's not solving climate change. It's not social justice. It's not feeding starving kids. And all of these things I'm mentioning are really important, but often people pursuing those things feel devoid of meaning in their life. Whereas like the Crawford or before him, the Robert Persig of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance argument is like, forget all like the highbrow stuff. Like just do something with your hands, do a good job at it and don't be an asshole. And the funny thing is if everyone did those three things, we wouldn't have these bigger problems in the world. Yeah. Well, and, and Persig also was at B, there's like a gratitude piece to it. Like actually derive and appreciate meaning out of capital Q quality, which was like an idea that I picked up again in deep work. It it worked its way into deep work as a bigger idea from this book, All Things Shining, which was Dreyfus and Kelly, I believe are their names. So it was a Harvard and a Berkeley philosopher. And it was this book that, um, very influential for me as well. It came out a little later. It opened with David Foster Wallace committing suicide. And I mean, it, it got into the, there's this sort of, liquid modernity idea that's been quoted a lot these days that um, he was having to create his entire framework of meaning for himself. And that's very difficult, right? When it's all on you, things get existentially despairing. And then they went through the history of ideas and about how in, in prior times, there were these external structures on which uh, not just meaning, but they would talk about mystery and value. And there was like a, a the, the Homeric Greeks literally felt like the gods were inhabiting them. And there was a sort of mysticism in the medieval era and et cetera. And that when that all went away, uh, you know, we were left with nothing except for what we could construct from scratch. It's very difficult each individually to construct it from scratch. And they, at the end of that book said, oh, we think the solution is craftsmanship. That there's something about actually 
confronting, at least if you want a secular solution, which they did, it's craftsmanship. You're confronting physical objects and there are immutable properties that you're not making up. Like, I got this thing to work or I didn't. This wood is good for bending into a wheel or it's not. There's value and properties in this whole world that exists that is cited outside of yourself, cited outside of your subjective you know, framework of value and that there's something saving about it. So it was like this big think approach on partially what you guys were both just saying uh, and what Perserg was saying what, and, and what you're pointing out in Crawford that uh, in mastery and skill and craftsmanship, uh, what you get is a value system cited outside of yourself and you need something to push to hang on or push on or to, to get outside of your own damn head a little bit, right? So, uh, right. yeah, maybe he's, touch, maybe he's touching on that. And and there's a spiritual, mystical element to it, too. This is like a big theme in my forthcoming book that like we we tend to divide religion and secularism. And I think that there's like dogmatic religion, which gives you a set of values and properties for meaning based on what someone tells you. And that is common in the West. But in the East, if you look at the quote unquote religions or spiritual traditions, they're actually a lot closer to fixing motorcycles. Like they are built on mastery and craft, whether it's Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, contemplative practice, focusing on nothing but your breath, learning about your breath, learning about the nature of your mind, paying close attention. That's like the core of those traditions. And in some schools of Buddhism, Focusing on that motorcycle is just as good as focusing on your breath. It's like an object of your attention that you care deeply about, that you continuously focus on, learn more about, and eventually you lose yourself in doing it. I mean, that's like the Buddhist path to enlightenment, and that's Crawford fixing motorcycles. Hmm. So I think that like, you know, it is very like spiritual to 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 be doing that. Um in 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 I find this so fascinating in Tibetan Buddhism enlightenment is often represented by like orgasm and sex because it's like the complete losing yourself in an act. And anyone that's ever done deep work, been in a flow state, reached nirvana meditating, it's it's in the middle of sex. Like if you're thinking about yourself, you're doing it wrong. But once you lose yourself, you're enlightened. And that's so different than most Western religious traditions. Not all, but most are like listening to someone else versus losing yourself out in the world. Um, so I think there's like a hugely spiritual mystical element in Crawford's book. And maybe that's another reason it's so popular because Mm. it's probably popular amongst a lot of people that were raised in Judeo Christianity who went to synagogue or went to church, listened to a sermon and thought that like spirituality was, you know, not swearing. Yeah. Well, it has the word soul, the word souls in the, in the titles. It was a clue. Yeah, there you go. No, I, I I I think it also gets to maybe why it was popular during this time period too, is because you also have this kind of search for meaning in that people are starting to evaluate, you know, Western religions and where they fall and and how they like to see it in their world. And you had this bigger divide at the same time as you had this increase of uh, passive consumption as the internet grew into what we now know it is today. Because you think this came out at the very beginnings or fruitions of this kind of social media boom as well before Twitter and all that 
and in the midst of Facebook growing and all that stuff. So I, I think all these kind of factors come together to probably make it a, a book that came out at the right time where people were feeling some of this angst and lack of meaning mm. and this search for things that, you know, they didn't have in their life. Right. So this would, let's see, 2009, 2010, right? This is financial crisis uh, had just happened. There was a lot of dislocation with that. Um, so the world of work was upended in a similar way that it is right now, sort of in the tail end of the pandemic where people are renegotiating what work means because there had been this disruption, something similar. That's right. It is a good context. I forgot about that, but we were in that same context back then, which was, I mean, that was a disruptive time that led to the emergence of a lot of meaning making. I mean, if, if like, if you go back, for example, and trace, um, I mean, if, if you look at the more sort of radical styles of the, the, postmodern critical theories that have emerged now as like being at the core of social justice, that all emerged in that period. It actually came, uh, the, the Occupy Wall Street movement was the pivot point that brought a lot of these ideas out of academia and into the activism class. And you, you for the first time, started to hear these ideas that, that you would have known from academic circles. So that's another example of something that emerged at that time. So maybe it, we, we, we should keep in mind the disruptive nature of what was happening in the world. Because I look back, I was like, oh, I was in grad school. You know, it's like my experience. I, I, and I had been in grad school for a long time. And, and so it, it feels like a very homogenous time, but it was, uh, it was on the world stage or the, the national stage disruptive. So yeah, there's yeah. a timing element there. Um, well, one, one last, uh, before we get to some insider baseball about the book and Crawford and et cetera, one last sort of big question about it. Uh, because I, I've, I've, I've had two minds about this point. So I want to get, pull you on this. In deep work, I, I pulled from Crawford and said, okay, this type of meaning through mastery, et cetera, the, the manual trades is just a way to get to that idea, but you can derive this out of any type of work. It doesn't matter if your hands are involved or not. And I, I talked about some like poetic conceptions of computer programming. Um, by Digital Minimalism, the next book, I, I had I had read some more. Uh, there's a book by Gary Rogowski, which is a, he's a woodworker, and a couple other books that um, were influential. And by then, I was like, well, there actually is something probably unique to the human experience uh, to our hands. And and while there's ideas from Crawford that we can apply to knowledge work and make it much more meaningful, it's this this complete agnosticism I had in deep work about, hey, whether it's in your mind or with your hands doesn't matter. It's these bigger points about meaning, uh, clarity and craft or whatever. I kind of turned around a little bit and said, actually, uh, a huge portion, portion of our brain is dedicated to our hands, the tactile pieces, and, and, and actually um, seeing something made physically manifest in the world. We probably get a special satisfaction out of that just because that's what work was um, until a minute ago. And so I've gone back and forth on that. So where, where where are both of you? Like Steve, where are you? I mean, is is which of those is right? <laughs> you know, I I fall more in the lines. I mean, I think they're both right to a degree, but I I fall more in the lines of doing stuff, whether it's with your hands or movement, plays a large role. And this could be, you know, out of the fact that I was just out of grad school. Whereas learning about the latest theories on uh, motor control and movement and performance, which were all shifting towards mm -hmm. like um, this kind of ecological psychology embodied cognition, meaning that perception is partially based on the movement that you're performing, right? We learn um, how we see the world 
uh, is connected to the movements we're able to perform. Um, the example I like to give that was widely cited at that point is uh, our ability or our, our height like influences whether we think we can uh, dunk or whether we think we can reach, you know, a tall item on a shelf or whatever have you, and how like we predict whether that movement can be successful or not. So like our action capabilities influence our perceptions, which then influences our actions. So as I apply that to this, this kind of Crawford work, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, like movement, um, plays a large role in this because it influences how we see the world and what we're able to do. Ooh, interesting. I don't know. I think that I fall in between the the two ends of the spectrum. So I don't think it's I don't think it's either or. I think it's a continuum. And I think sure, maybe woodworking or deadlifting or fixing motorcycles is pure craftsmanship and mastery. And then I think that you can work toward that if you are doing something that is more brain focused. Um, one thing that I think makes a huge difference, it's something that I do with all my coaching clients and like unambiguously, I don't think I've ever had anyone that went back or didn't like this is, um, we start taking all of our notes in a physical notebook with a physical pen. So you don't have to write your next great novel or your executive report or do your PowerPoint deck with your hands, but you do need to capture creative ideas and think with your hands. And I had never thought of it until now, but I'm sure a part of why people like that, why they report being more creative, feeling more like integrated with their work, if it is knowledge work, is because it's making it real in the world. It's not just existing in a cloud. Um, so I think that maybe one takeaway for individuals that are not fixing things in the world or professional athletes, which is all of us, is that, yeah, autonomy, mastery, belonging, care deeply, single task, pay close attention, try to have a brain trust of people that really care about you and your work that you can evaluate your work and trust. And then also think about what can you do to make your work more real? And if it's using a notebook and writing with your hand, great. If it is going from using BS words like leverage and hierarchies and blah, 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 like try to speak more clearly and simply, like get closer to reality and perhaps you'll find more fulfillment. Yeah, I think I, here's, here's, here's my, my summary then. Here's where I think I fall is that I think it's congruent with what both of you just said. Um, we're wired to understand and get satisfaction out of a very physical, sort of traditional craft because this was something humans did. We could uh, conceive of things and then make those those conceptions manifest. Okay, now I built this thing and it matches the thing I was thinking about in my head. Uh, you know, the the bells go off in our head. You feel good because we're we're wired for it. And a lot of what we're you could summarize a lot of this advice for knowledge work is basically, yeah, you're hijacking that system to try to get more sort of meaning and success out of your knowledge work. Like you're basically hijacking a system that was meant for um, uh, cavemen to build tools in order to get more meaning and satisfaction out of being a novelist or something like this. Um, and that's good. Like you want to, this is the, this, the, 
the closest system we have that's most relevant to work is this. So how do we hijack that? In other words, how do we make what we do on a computer screen be as congruent as possible to what we do in a motorcycle shop? But then you probably also, and this is the, the argument from digital minimalism, probably should have at least a hobby that actually directly touches that system because you don't want to neglect it. So you're better off trying to hijack the craft brain system for your knowledge work job is going to make it better. But it's not, not going to make that job necessarily the same as being a wheelwright. So you might also want to have a hobby somewhere where you're doing that more directly um, because we're wired for it. That's the thing that I got convinced of sort of post-soul uh, shop class and sort of pre-digital minimalism is like, ah, there's something there. And so maybe it's a way to think about it, right? We're just hijacking. We're hijacking the system. Um, and, and, and the way we typically work today is terribly mismatched with this system. And so we all feel on we, and, uh, and then we all we all like this book. Um, let's do some insider baseball, just some some book publishing stuff. I, let me, it's a little redundant to say that I'm I'm stealing an idea here from Bill Simmons because this whole podcast is stealing an idea from Bill Simmons. Uh, but but let's get even more specific in our theft. When you first, let's start with you, Brad. When you first encountered this book in 2000, whatever it was, were you buying Matt Crawford stock? Were you thinking, okay, this is someone who's going to kind of dominate the world of ideas for a while? Uh, I would say back then I wasn't even thinking about dominating the world of ideas. I was just like, Oh, like this dude's on to something. Um, right. I was at grad school. I had just finished two years at McKinsey. I was very much living some of the things that he was giving me a new language for. So I was much more like, a, I want to meet this dude. B, when my then girlfriend, now wife, says, like, you're spending too much time training on your bike, I could just be like, oh, yeah, read this book. You're spending too much time dealing with law school. <laughs> so that's where I was at. Yeah, which she loved, I'm sure, hearing. Yeah. Steve, would you, if you were in Penguin in 2009, would you be saying after this book came out and hit that chord, would you be like, okay, let's lock this guy up in a three book deal? Yeah, I mean, I I was moved enough by this book to think like, oh, this is a thinker. And I remember, um, you know, it was several years later when his uh, next book came out, if I remember correctly. But I remember buying it just because it was Matt Crawford. And I was like, oh, like this guy, like whatever he writes about at this point, I'm sold on it because like, you know, he he hit on some concepts and then balanced this idea of, oh, here's some research, plus here's some philosophy, plus here's some experience, which really resonated with me at the time and I think set him a little bit of a part because we're used to, you know, saying, hey, here's some research, I'm going to go read this academic book, but no practical experience, or here's my thoughts based on practice, but no philosophy, academic, et cetera, behind it. So that really sold me on that integration of that, that he was a good thinker. Yeah, and he, but he never got, well, I guess he didn't get it. How do we think about what happened to him next? Let me put it that way. Uh, <laughs> what's the right way to understand the, the literary career? And let me, by the way, preface this. I am a massive Matt Crawford fan. Uh, he blurbed deep work, and it's all part of my scheme that I'm still working on that hasn't been, I haven't quite brought to fruition yet of finding a way to hang out with him because I just think he's like one of the more influential the thinkers I've encountered. Um, but he wrote two books after this, The World Beyond Your Head, and then more recently, Why We Drive. Um, 
how do we under from just a strictly professional standpoint, how do we evaluate what happened? I mean, I is it fair to say obviously those books were not culture shifting nearly in the same way? Yes. I I was gonna say, I would say that Matt Crawford is probably in the eyes of his publishers, maybe like a little bit of a flop after this book. That said, he set a very high bar for what a flop means. And most important, I don't think Matt Crawford gives a shit because I, I genuinely true. believe I he's yeah. fixing motorcycles and he couldn't even tell you which of his books sold the most copies. So by that metric, he's enormously successful. And a reminder that particularly in this tradition of human potential or mastery, um, lots of thinkers are not in their time wildly popular and then become more popular. So like Eric Fromm was mildly read, George Leonard mildly read, and sometimes it takes a generation or two. And I think the more that we turn into like automatons in a huge consumeristic flywheel, the more relevance this book might have, or we'll just forget about Crawford. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think he's a smashing success by conventional standards, but I think he's a smashing success by his own standards. Because like I said, I just can't imagine Matt Crawford caring. Well, we should point out he, he still has Shaco motor, his, his, repair shop. He's also a fellow at UVA and they're like Institute for Cultural Studies. So he really is figuring this out. He like goes, uh, my understanding is he goes to campus um, a couple days a week, maybe. Uh, it's like a fellowship. He writes smart things and mainly is working working on his motorcycles. He doesn't repair motorcycles anymore though. He he does custom builds. So I don't, I don't know what we take away that. I think I'm holding on to my, my Crawford stock too. I think Brad, you're absolutely right that uh, this is going to be, I hope he keeps writing. It's going to be one of these thinkers that 30 years from now we look back on and say, oh, this this guy had his finger on a lot of things. And I think you're right that he could not care less about, you know, uh, what are the, what's my Amazon rank in, you know, week three. Uh, I also think a world outside our head, it was the idea piece of of shop class without the grounding piece right? I mean, it went pure academic. He's a smart guy. I mean, he's got a special brain, right? And then his new book, I'm Why We Drive, it's back, uh, I don't know, I think it's back more to vintage Crawford because it's more, he's grounding again. It's, it, it's a meditation on human freedom, etc. But he's completely grounding it in something that involves, you know, grease under your, under your nails. Um, yeah, so I'm okay. So I'm holding on. I'm holding on to my. I'm holding on to my Crawford stock, even if the the splashy metaphorical th- or, or hypothetical, I should say, three book deal in 2010 uh, got the would have got the editor in trouble <laughs> with their publisher. Um, yeah, okay. I'm holding on. I'm holding on my Crawford stock. He's he's, he's doing something unique for sure. And I think it's it, you know it's coming back to one other thing we mentioned earlier, which is timing. Because, you know, having read Why We Drive recently, which is, I think you're right, it's back to vintage Crawford's shop classes, soul craft, integrating these different um, practices and philosophy. But it's interesting because I wonder if, if Why We Drive is a little too early 
right? Because I don't know if everyone's feeling the central premise of that book is, you know, well, doing, driving, like gives us these things that we don't recognize versus this automated world we're kind of going towards. I just wonder if the timing versus shop class kind of came out at the right time and why we drive might gain in popularity as we go into this more, you know, people face this more, you know, passive life of automation or things being done for them or, you know, even driving being taken away. Um, and it gains value when that time, you know, comes. Yeah. Well, partially what made that timing interesting, it was in the pandemic. I mean, it was yeah. June yeah. 2020. It, he did some really interesting interviews, by the way. It's not really the main point of the book necessarily, but he was doing some really interesting pandemic, heart of the pandemic interviews about why we drive, where the point, this really stuck with me. He, he was talking about like, look, the guys in the shops where I work have a different relationship with coronavirus than the knowledge workers I know. And it's, um, they're not as worried about it. They aren't really... Uh, obsessing as much about it like they'll put on mask if required to do this and that it's just not something and he's like uh, and i think it all comes down to a different relationship with risk this type of work has these dangers like the the things fall you lose fingers things get chopped off in the saw the car comes off of the stands and so they're very and and, and he was also talking about they race cars some of these guys which is risky he's like oh so they're very comfortable with doing risk analysis and very comfortable with like very precisely gauging risk you know, like, okay, yeah, this could happen. Probably won't, though. This I'm comfortable with that risk. This is too much risk. And so his his contention was the guys around me in the shop um, were very easily able to take at the time in like the summer. And it's very easily kind of able to take it in. Uh, like, how risky is this thing? How likely am I to get it? How bad would it be for me compared to these other risks I have? And like, okay, like, yeah, it's, it's a higher risk. There's other elevated risk in my life, whatever. And that the rest of us have no relationship to risk beyond just basically no risk, <laughs> uh, which we're just not comfortable with it. So it just fried our circuit. Like, wait, something bad could really happen here. Um, hand me the welding torch because I'm trying to get this door frame you know, welded. I'm trying to get this door frame welded shut and the, the Uber Eats driver can catapult the food to me through the chimney because, you know, uh, so I don't know if that's either here nor there. It probably didn't help him sell the book to be doing that type of interviews on sort of rich white people type stations. But I thought that was really interesting. And it's not the point of the book. And I don't know why I'm bringing it up other than for some reason, I just really remember that, that, yeah, you do stuff with risk, you get comfortable with risk. And when new risks come along, uh, you know, and, and the other group, and now I'm, I'm completely on a digression here. The other group that had a very similar reaction to uh, COVID was the, the Navy SEALs who have podcasts who I know or I, or I follow and Crawford helped me understand why. Is like, oh, their whole life is like calculated risks. You know, like everything they do, they're jumping out of planes and blowing things up and going on missions. And so like they're just very used to like risks at different levels and like, yeah, that's above here, but below here, I'll be a little bit more cautious, whatever. Um, I'm gonna take a nap. And uh, so so there we go. I mean, that yeah. probably didn't help the book, but it was a an interesting, timely application of his ideas. Yeah. I remember when those interviews were happening in in I think that Crawford spoke to this with more nuance. What bothered me in lots of those discussions was the conversation was on risk avoidance, not on value. And if the cost is just wearing a mask 
or like not being able to go watch football at B dubs, that's a pretty low cost to avoid like a long tail risk. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's easy to see the, like, I think a risk of writing a book like this is you start to see the world like through your idea. And I do remember listening to Crawford being like, I am, I am know my bias as probably someone that is very risk averse, that is a knowledge worker that has a young kid. And I kept thinking like, but come on, man, like they're asking you to wear a mask now the extent of closing things down and what things were closed down. I actually think, and now we're going on a real segue that the, those decisions were made with non-perfect information. And I think that people in good faith generally tried to do a good job. I think the media hysteria about all this has just been terrible since day one, but it's like, if it bleeds, it leads. So of course it's constantly going to bleed, but um, back to Crawford and why we drive. I thought that was really good. I was really glad because I had never heard of Shoshana Zubov until I read that book. And she wrote Surveillance Capitalism that Crawford mm-hmm. quotes a few times and really draws from. And that book, you know, if, if you've made it this far in this podcast, you're probably a reader into this kind of book. I could not more highly recommend Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. It's dense. It will take you time to get into, but it is just a completely mind-blowing book um, on... The, 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 I guess what she would call the instrumentization of all of our behaviors to serve the ability to sell us stuff. And um, I say that I change my mind often, but I, I'm like a human. It's still hard to. And reading that book gave me a total 180 on the Google self-driving car. Um, now I think it's a terrible idea because I read that book and I used to think it was a great idea. Yeah, everyone has to read that book. I love those books, by the way, where it's it, it's not replicatable because it's like I've spent my whole life studying this, and you don't really know enough about this. I'm going to bring you into this world, and it blows up your head. Um, now, you can't write a book like that unless like you actually spend a good portion of your life like mastering uh, like a tough man. But that I I I underlined that I read that book. Why did I read that book? Is because we were interviewing uh, professor candidates at Georgetown. And we were interviewing someone who works in that field of like trying to basically using it. They try to counter some of these surveillance capitalist things that are going on. And he just sat down and walked me through um, all the ways we're being tracked. And he's like, hold on, let me pull up calnewport.com. He's like, okay, you have multiple things on here that you didn't know that are tracking people who come to your website. You don't even know they're there figuring out who they are based on fingerprinting and then selling that information on an auction market so that we can better target an ad because this is someone who is just at calnewport.com so we know what to sell them. And you didn't even, it was the, your widget for signing up for your newsletter. Yeah, you know what they put in there? Code to track people and sell their information on. And and and, and then he got into, oh, do you realize what happens with your app, your, uh, like your Fire Stick or your Roku? You realize it's selling all the information about what you're watching and when you're watching and it's being integrated with... Um, so that got me onto that book and it's scary. So I'm with you. Uh, you know, we, we were all being surveilled and, you know, uh, except for Crawford, who's probably, you know, in his disconnected garage, uh, tuning up his motorcycle. I, okay. I'm, I'm doing a search now that I'm nervous about. Uh, I am, I am searching for Matthew Crawford in social media and I am hoping there is not a bunch of weightlifting videos here. All right. Let's see here. That by well, the way, Kale does that search. If you want to take the algorithms for a trip, 
Um, I actually do this weekly and it's probably a waste of my time, but I, it makes me feel good. Like I'm beating the system. I'll like Google poisonous iguanas or like black widow spiders. So like I was on like a small animal phase and then sometimes I Google like different kinds of trees, um, or like, um, water treatment products. And it definitely messes up the algorithm all the way through Spotify. Like I'll spend time Googling like reptiles and suddenly my Spotify song recommendations are totally different. So keep the algorithm guessing. So the algorithm's watching our video right now and they're going to start sending me a lot of James Clear links. Right, Brad? (laughs) Because you look exactly like him. And (laughs) the algorithm is learning. By the way, okay, here's irony, guys. I just looked up Matt Crawford. Oh, it's a different person. Oh, thank God. Okay. I just looked up. I was like, oh, here's Matt Crawford's uh, um, Twitter page. And it's a bunch of tweets about him having COVID. Which, there would be some like deep irony in it, but this is a different Matt Crawford. So, okay. Saved by the saved by the bell there. I, I don't know why this matters. I'm just I just have, I have this hope that he is not someone who is spending a lot of time on social media. I'm sure he's um, not on social media at all. I'd be shocked if you could find Matt Crawford. I can't find him. I yeah, can't I'd be shocked him. if yeah. you could find Matt Crawford in Charlottesville. <laughs> so does he live? I, I think he lives near to DC. Uh, his his shop. Anyways, I, this is all part of my plan to go hang out with Matt Crawford, um, which has been a long term plan of mine that hasn't yet come to fruition. But I think he he he's in sort of suburban Virginia, and then drives down the Charlotte. Is this weird that I know this stuff? Is this going to come across as creepy? All right, I can't find him. So um, on inst- on social media, so I'm I'm happy. Him and I are the last two. Uh, okay, no, nothing. No radio is more exciting than uh, people googling things. All right, well, good. So I think we figured this out. Um, would this final question? Uh, could he sell this book today if he was just starting? Or would they say, where's your, where's your Instagram account? Like, where's your podcast? Or 2021, this portfolio I mean, of books. Let's find out. If, you, if y'all are listening to this podcast and you want to read this book, let Cal know. Um, and I'd be really curious to see, like, A, is this conversation even resonant now or is it just the three of us navel-gazing and, you know, intellectually just having fun? Um, or is there uh, is there still an appetite for it? I, I think it's a super important book. I think it was also a groundbreaker. It's kind of like MJ and then you get, you know, Kobe and... I don't know, Devin Booker, maybe like the wing guard. I love basketball. So like you get deep work and you get, um, oh, it's, it's, it's totally eluding me. Oh, the shallows, Nicholas Carr. Like you get these other books that are very similar. Am I MJ or Devin Booker in this analogy? (laughs) No, no, no. Matt Crawford is MJ. (laughs) I see. All right. So then I'm Kobe. No, no, I I guess what I'm saying is that talk about like belonging in, in, in lineage is I think like Crawford is somewhere in a lineage and then, you know, in, in, in coaching and in performance coaching and particularly in sports, Steve will know more about this than me. You have like these coaching trees and you have like this old timer master coach and then all these disciples and they emerge and they emerge and they emerge. And I feel like Crawford 
is kind of higher up in that tree, perhaps. And maybe Persig. I, you'd have to ask Crawford, like, who he sees or from. But I think that he is like a firm branch on the tree that says, hey, yeah. these are age-old ideas about mastery and paying attention and caring. Here's modernity, and here's my first take on like taking back our time and energy for what matters, concreteness, mastery. And then that is going to spurn other books like the books that we write. So, um, so that's how I think of him. One, one thing that I think is interesting that I think uh, Cal was alluding to is I think this book would have a harder time getting published, though. Maybe published in a, a popular press like Penguin because he has no social media, right? No following to a degree. He's a professor, right? Or, you know, works at UVA and some other stuff. I think if it just came out at this point and Crawford wasn't known, it might have a harder time taking off, which I think is, you know, kind of sad and a disservice. Yeah. I, I think he had like a big New York Times magazine P like excerpt. I think that's what launched it, it's my memory. Is like they they basically kind of re-ran. This might be wrong, but I think they kind of re-ran his uh, New Atlantis essay or something like this. But yeah, I think that's sad, man. I think you might be right, though. Right? Uh, they might they might say um, you have no platform. You know, though though right now would be a great time for this book to come out. Like, I hope this pops to sales. I mean, everyone's doing the same thing now they were doing in two thousand and ten after the the crash. Like, what does work mean? What do I want to do with my life? I mean, this would be a perfect time. Uh, I guess it'd be a yeah, it would be a perfect time. Somebody's got book. a book coming out in September. <laughs> That's this, okay. We should we should say Brad does have a book coming out in September. It is a uh, a coffee table book full of photos of him weightlifting. So <laughs> I think we should all we should all look forward. It says in is it's called Like Me, and then it's and it's I like Instagram pages. I don't know, but uh, no, uh, Brad has a oh, book. You're killing me. Uh, Cal, you're grounded. Killing me. It, Brad's book is perfectly timed and I, I can't even give you too much credit because you didn't, you couldn't have predicted this timing. I remember when you were first working on this, no, but, but, it's a, but it, and, and we'll talk more about it later, hopefully, yeah. but like it's a timeless book and it's kind of like this book and it's not rocket science, but it's like a call to focus on what matters, define what matters and then try to craft a life around those things that matter. I mean, you call it the deep yeah. life. I call it groundedness. Like the, which the, is these are the moment. This is These the moment. Are, Everyone's like, how do I do that? You're yeah. Right. Like people suddenly care. Yeah. So yeah. last time around we had Crawford. I'm now interested we have, yeah. in too, and now we're getting way off is like maybe where sometimes I think like I'd like to see our writing go, all of us individually, the things we talk about together. And Cal, I think you're kind of doing this a little bit, at least in your popular press writing and, and with the world without email is the individual, like, uh, our our work has predominantly been bottom up, and maybe you'd say a world without email changed that, where we're helping individuals work in a system that has lots that is wrong with it to be better, feel better, and change the system. And I think that at some point, it'd be nice to start switching to some of the issues with the system. Like something that's on my mind a ton and in my brain relates completely to Crawford's work is like universal basic income. Like if technology truly gets so good that all the actual things that matter or most of them can be done by robots and algorithms, then should we really make people get bullshit jobs just to keep them busy? 
Or should we tax the owners of the remarkable technology at a very high rate, give people $60,000, $70,000 a year to live on, and then there'd be more art, more creative work, more motorcycle mechanics? I don't know the answer, but I do think that we're eventually going to get to a point where technology gets really good and the only, many of the jobs left are just there to keep people busy. And I don't think that is a recipe for a thriving society. Well, okay, just bring us to the last question then, and perfectly, uh, which is if you could if you could decide what Matt wrote next, what would it be? And I would what you're saying here just catches my attention. You know, uh, shop class laid out an issue, uh, laid out a philosophical framework. I would love a follow up of how could we reconceive the world of work, given what he uncovered. In shop class, I think it'd be great. Just sort of like a world without email follows up the deep work. Like, how would you rethink work now that we understand the value of deep work or whatever? Just like Jaron Lanier, after you are not a gadget, wrote uh, the the book about like rebuilding the internet. Like, his idea turned out to be crazy, um, but I love that. I love that one-two pair. If you have a book that like lays out a new value system and, and elucidates it, you're like, oh wow, this thing is really valuable, and we're missing it right now. And then when you pair that with the like, and then here's how we rebuild. Here's how we could dramatically rebuild things. I love the dramatic rebuild book. I don't think we have enough of those. I think people worry too much about people saying, well, that's a bad idea. And I think that kind of ignores the point, which is take the big swing and then let people add their own caveats. So, all right. So that's my answer. to our final question. Steve, what's your answer? What book would you convince Matt to write next? Yeah, I'm just going to steal your answer because I love it. I actually think it ties in well with... Uh, why we drive, which just kind of gets on this. Oh, what does the future look like in terms of when we have automation and aren't driving cars? I want that bigger, grander, like to expand out to what does the future look like when almost all of our jobs are automated and we have time for doing, but we have all of this system, this internet, social media, etc., that pulls us away from active doing into passive consumption. Like, how do we take that back um, and uh, go towards active doing in a world where, you know, everything's automated? So like a pitch. All right, Brad, are you going to zag or where's your, what's your answer? Uh, I, I'd love Crawford to write a book on universal basic income. I think like it gets to his political philosophy I, and I have no idea. I could feel like he's totally for it or he thinks it's a terrible idea, um, but I would love for him to wrestle with that idea. I think it'd be really interesting because I'd imagine if I'm seeing the thread, then he's probably thought about it a lot more between um, jobs that don't really matter just to keep people busy and letting people take more shots at the arts and creativity and manual work. Um, Yeah. I mean, in my own like, worldview Crawford's made me like what I call like a progressive libertarian, like super progressive on so many things, but also like generally like big bureaucracies are full of BS. So people will make good for the most part, make decent decisions if you set them up to. Um, But um, I think like, yeah, I'd be really curious to hear what Crawford thinks about universal basic income. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Or, or just more generally, Crawford. Let, let's let's get that like brilliant, somewhat curmudgeonly, non-Twitter affected brain taking some swings at policy or taking some swings at, at at some some big ideas about how to live. All right, Penguin. You've heard it. 
get on the phone. I assume it's a phone you would have to use that he picks up off the wall in his motorcycle repair shop and has the long cable and he brings it in. Get on the old-fashioned phone with Matt and get him writing another book. Uh, Steve, Brad, thank you for uh, joining this first sort of rewatchables ripoff. I enjoyed it. And everyone else out there listening, put down your phone and go try to repair motorcycle. All right. Thanks, everyone. All right. That was fun. We'll be back next week with our normal Q&A formats, but it was nice to have a little change of pace for the July holiday. So we will see you next week with those answers. And until then, as always, stay deep. Stay deep.